Welcome to Zero Five O. I'm your host, Bruce Bradley, founder of recycling company First Mile. This is our Green Impact podcast, where we meet guests creating solutions for a zero carbon world. For this episode of Zero Five O, I am delighted and honoured to be joined by legendary explorer, author, and environmental activist Robin Hambury Tennyson. Robin's lifetime achievements are incredible. He's completed over 30 major expeditions, written more than 25 books, and he's founder and president of Survival International, the global movement for tribal rights. Robin recently piqued my interest with his latest book, Taming the Four Horsemen, because it is quite different from many of the books on solving the climate crisis, and I was thrilled when he agreed to come on the show. As greenies often focus on one area of the climate emergency, like energy or waste, or sometimes we sweat over the small stuff, arguing about whether it's better to be a vegan or a vegetarian. But in his manifesto for change, Taming the Four Horsemen, Robin describes the scale, and it is a huge scale, of what we need to achieve to prevent us becoming a lost civilization. Welcome to Zero Five O, Robin. It is a great pleasure to welcome you to the show. Wonderful to be on. Excellent. So I'm going to go to the end of the book to sort of get us going. There's a really interesting section at the end where you talk about being green pioneers back at the sort of start of your career, which describes how you were involved in the green movement from very early on. And I think it'd be really interesting to sort of use that time as a, as a scene setter of how you linked those very early green pioneers and how you've connected that back to writing the Horseman book. Okay, well, I'd done a certain amount of exploring in South America and uh, other places in the Amazon. And uh, in 1969, we started Survival, a small group of us, because we realized there was no international organization representing tribal people. And they were being extinguished all over the world, particularly in Brazil, where a huge scandal erupted. A tribe a year was dying out as a result of mismanagement by the government. And that triggered us to start Survival International. And one of the founders with me was Teddy Goldsmith, brother of Jimmy, and really the founder of the whole ecological movement in this country. We managed to raise enough money to employ our first director, who then eloped with Teddy to Cornwall, well, they, because they'd been staying with us down here. And they set up a sort of commune, really, of ecologists down in the Withiel Valley, where all the great names of the original ecology movement, Mike Allaby and uh, Peter Bunyard and so on, all started writing what became one of the great manifestos of the Green Movement, The Blueprint for Survival, which was published in 1972. I always say that it actually emanated from Survival International because we generated the first interest in that subject. 2022, this year, will be the 50th anniversary of that publication. And strangely enough, out of the woodwork has come Robert Allen, who started it all and was the first director, who said, we've got to celebrate the 50th anniversary because everything we said was right. We forecast all this stuff back in 1972, 50 years ago. And if they'd only listened to us, the world wouldn't be in such a parlous state. They did a few things wrong. But by and large, that manifesto, the blueprint for survival, and the Stockholm Conference, which was the first of all the conferences leading up to the latest one, COP26, was the beginning of the whole debate on climate change. And both Teddy and I were there getting pilloried by weirdos and having an interesting time. 
But that was the beginning of the whole Great Green debate. So I was there from the start. Quite amazing now. So 50 years on and, um, you know, in that time you've travelled. I mean, you did a lot of travelling before the Blue Planet for Survival was written, but you've travelled all over. You've seen tribal people living without modern means, without uh, TikTok and Wi-Fi. And David Attenborough said humans have completely overrun the planet and we've done the vast majority of that in the last 50 years. Do you think we're programmed as a species to self-destruct? You talk a lot about lost civilizations in the Four Horsemen. Do you think we're going to be another one, or do you think there is a possibility of not self-destructing? Well, it's going to be a close-run thing, and ironically, the only people who do live in harmony with nature and who are the best conservationists are, of course, the tribal people that we started Survival International to represent and to save their lands and their way of life. So there's a terrific irony in that, in that the whole green movement really grew from a concern for the survival of tribal people. And the same criteria apply today as they did 50 years ago. They did get a few things wrong with that. One or two things have slowed it all up and, and sort of obscured the crises that are facing us today. One of them was the Green Seed Revolution, a man who won the Nobel Prize, Bolag, because suddenly there was enough food to feed the world. But it came at the price of having to use vast amounts of pesticide and fertilizer and has had a catastrophic effect on the, um, on the planet. And then the other thing that they got wrong was that they kept saying we were going to run out of oil and, and other resources because it was a finite amount of natural resources in the world. And they were right about that. But what they didn't know was how effective finding new sources of oil would be and keep us going for another 50 years, which they shouldn't have done. If only the crisis had happened then, we'd have sorted it all out a long time ago. We're getting it round to it now, slowly and a bit too late. So to answer your question, um, it's going to be touch and go. Yeah, I mean, a million dollar question is how fast do we need to act, do you think? What's your view on that? Very fast. I, unlike many people, was rather encouraged by COP26. I went there, I managed to get in as an observer for a rainforest organisation. So I was in the Holy of Holies where all these weird things like cleaner recessions were going on and people, country after country was coming up with tremendous promises of what they were going to do. I found it all very optimistic that people were at last addressing the problem in this really serious way. Of course, there was a lot of greenwashing. Of course, a lot of it was hocus pocus and my country is going to do more than your country. But they were beginning to sign treaties together. They were beginning to talk together. They were beginning to accept the idea that climate change is real. And it became universally accepted almost overnight, which is hugely exciting and encouraging. Meanwhile, on the other side of the fence, which I also joined, were all the protesters. We went on terrific marches, waving our banners and singing songs and so on. But the negativity from the Greta Thunberg side of the fence, I found rather depressing because it was entirely thanks to her and Extinction Rebellion that governments have had to sit up and take notice about this. And I think they should be congratulating themselves rather than forecasting more gloom and doom. It's all there. We haven't done nearly enough. We've got to do much, much more. But it's a start, and I would like to welcome that. Yeah, and we just need to keep powering on with that massive amount of positivity. Interesting that has happened for me, and whether it's you know, reflected in your feelings about COP26, it feels that, I mean, I've been doing environmental stuff now for 30 years, and it feels like we've had a few false dawns. But this time, I think because the money people are talking about change, I think that's the key difference this time around. And there seems to be a huge amount of money going into green technologies and working towards reducing our impact on the planet. Would you concur with that? You're absolutely right. It all comes down to money in the end. It's the financiers who will screw it all up, all these treaties. And uh, I forget who it was said recently, rather wisely, that uh, 
Oh, it was James Lovelock, actually, who was writing his nth book at, at the age of 101, which gives us all the hope. And Jim Lovelock was very much part of all this movement when we started it instead. But it, he said that it was, you know, the, the things that would mess it all up was the financiers. But it has changed. Things have changed so radically in the last couple of years. It's been amazing. COVID has been part of it because it's opened everybody's eyes to the fact that nature is wonderful. Nature, healing power of nature saved my life when I got COVID. And that's another whole story. The exciting thing is that it's now climate change is real and it's accepted. And it means that we've got to get rid of the internal combustion engine. We've got to get rid of coal mines and, and uh, generating through fossil fuels. And, and that is now starting and uh, it's possible that it will happen. We are going to get onto the sort of how you frame the issue with the four horsemen in a second. But it's interesting hearing you talk then about sort of the last 50 years. And, you know, in the 70s, we thought we were going to run out of oil. But actually, then we were, we, although it is a, a finite resource, we we're just very good at extracting more and more of it. Is there a parallel to be drawn here between the mayor who built their civilization in rainforest in a rainforest area but then they they've cut it back they had farmland the soil was very thin they changed the climate and then we believe the civilization was lost because of climate change and the fact that they'd overused the area they lived in and is there a similar sort of analogy with oil and actually we increasingly making everything from oil from fertilizers through to clothing Therefore, we've sort of elongated this, the sort of, in, in, it's like the sort of the Mayan rainforest is sort of has no bounds or the bounds are much wider. How could we learn from the sort of lost civilization of the Maya versus we could sort of, we've sort of reached every sort of corner of the world and we keep inventing new things from oil, which sort of give us a longer stay of execution. Maybe we're just going to end with a bigger bang than the, than the Maya perhaps did when their civilization ended. Well, yes. I mean, this is a global problem, no longer just a local one, which was the mayor. And when I first crossed the Amazon rainforest in Brazil in uh, 1958, that is now half the size it was when I first went 4,000 miles across it, and uh, mostly unexplored areas. It's half the size in my lifetime. That is terrifying. And this is a global problem, as I say. But the very exciting things are happening with technology. I mean, plastics are the other thing you didn't mention that come from oil as well, mostly from oil. And it's everywhere now. It's in all your systems, in your body and mine and everywhere else. And every fish and insect in the world now has nanoplastics in their system. And that's very depressing and, and very scary. Think of the Great Pacific Garbage Patch, which is twice the size of Spain. And it's only one of five in the oceans of the world where all these huge areas of plastic are. And that's where I think we should be devoting our efforts to scooping that up and turning it into something harmless and useful. And the exciting thing is, again, since I wrote the book and, and um, so many of the things that I tentatively suggested there are now real. One of them is, and there was a whole lot in the week this week about microbes which eat plastic. I mean, that's yeah. incredible. If they can really yeah. work on that, we have to find ways of devouring this stuff and turning it into something harmless and useful. You just look at the week and, and, and read that section in the science part. It, it's extraordinary. I, I just have a quick look because it's here in front of me. And they say that. Um, Bugs are evolving to eat plastic. And uh, also the exciting thing that insects are leaving DNA in the air. I mean, the research that's going on into how this extraordinary, diverse planet of ours works is incredibly important. And that's where the money should go, into more research, into finding out about that. In Taming the Four Horsemen, you frame the problem that 
we face as humanity because people often talk about you know we need to save the planet save the climate we don't that's the, the climate the planet will be absolutely fine it's it's humanity we're talking about and i think that's also dawning on people uh, in the last two years which is the big change and you frame the four horsemen as the pandemics conflict famine and deforestation and um global warming as the problems global warming and cleaning up um uh, pollution such as plastics let's talk about those in any order you like let's start with microbes because we sort of started talking there why, why do pandemics matter and um why are microbes so so important for our civilization well i had no idea until i started researching this book just how important microbes were that's another sudden awareness that's happened over the last couple of years. People are now aware because they're getting so many wonderful books about the subject, about fungi, Merlin Sheldrake's amazing book on fungi, and on mycorrhizomes and roots and trees talking to each other and so on. I mean, the statistics are just staggering. They are more impressive than the statistics of space, which I always found too difficult to get my head around infinity anyway. We can't, we can't accept that. We can't understand it. But there is an infinity of small things that is actually greater. I mean, when you're told that a teaspoonful of healthy soil contains more life forms than there have ever been people on the planet, and it has tens of thousands of miles of mycorrhizomes in a teaspoonful of soil, I mean, the infinity, when you start looking in, is so exciting. This is all life. This is what life depends on. Our lives depend on. All nature depends on. And when you start getting your head around that and how we let microbes, which are extraordinary, and, and actually, you're just a, a whole lot of microbes with a nutrition going in one end and coming out the other, and microbes doing their stuff on the way. And, I mean, you have more life forms in your large intestine, as indeed do I, than the, by a, f a huge factor than there are stars in the Milky Way, you know, trillions as opposed to 400 billion. And these affect your mood and everything. Now, if we were researching that and understanding it, which we are beginning to do more, and it's been triggered by trying to understand how pandemic happened and how all these new variants came in and so on. If we'd been devoting our efforts to looking into that and understanding how it all worked medically, we may not have had a pandemic. We'd be able to deal with it. Instead of which, we spent billions sending rockets into space to see if there happened to be one microbe on Mars as though that would matter, which I'm afraid I regard as basically self-indulgent by spoiled billionaires who have nothing better to do. Yeah, absolutely. It's sheer madness trying to find another planet to uh, live on or colonize when we've got a perfectly good one here that we're wrecking by the right by the minute. Is there an area that you think is sort of the most promising at the microscopic level for solving pandemics? Or is this sort of with the four horsemen, it's a case of saying, this is the area that we need to look in. Let's look in this area. Well, it's one of the provocative solutions I, I put in the book. I was meant to provoke. And rather to my astonishment, instead of provoking, I'd be proved right. It's not necessarily a genius who's proved right. Sometimes one just stumbles on the truth. I mean, the microbes, the first horse, the, the, uh, the white horse, the implications when you start looking into the importance of microbes are really infinite. In two areas alone, I think the world could be changed radically. One is medicine, which we've talked about. I mean, if, if every breath you take, you exude 36 million microbes. And uh, they spread, as we now understand, thanks to COVID, that they, they spread all over very easily to people and you catch them. Now, if instead of looking at a patient, a doctor, and saying, well, I had one like this in the past, and putting a splint on that and giving you some of this stuff, 
uh, seemed to help then, so we'll try again, which is basically what modern medicine does. They, they were able to capture those microbes that you breathe out, which will now tell you where you were born, where you grew up, whether you were a lumberjack or a fisherman or a school teacher as, as, as a young man, and all the things you do. It can tell your whole life story and your medical history. Now, that is a very, very exciting and revolutionary way of, of, of looking at, at life through microbes. And the same thing applies to agriculture. Instead of just doing what our forebears did, and very often quite effectively in, in getting more food from less land, but very often damaging the environment on the way, you can now do it in the most exciting ways and the most provocative of all my solutions to that. I mean, we've got some not-so-provocative ones like vertical farming, which is clearly a way of growing vegetables inside a town without transport and so on, and insects. We, we made a great mistake eating mammals instead of insects. They're far better for you, but people go yuck. People go yuck much more about my solution to it, including my family who think I'm mad, which is that I think the future of farming is, is a lot of farms are going to go bust globally and a, a good thing too because we must start eating less meat and, and most of it's produced in a totally unhealthy and unsustainable way. We can now, and I tentatively suggested in the book, that there's one firm called um, Solar, meat, Solar Foods in Finland, which is producing cultured meat. And uh, Musa Meat in, in Holland produced the first hamburger 15 years ago, cost $250,000. And uh, it was indistinguishable from the, the meat was more succulent and, and indistinguishable and just as good for you. In fact, much better for you because it didn't have all the hormones and antibiotics, which most meat has nowadays. And this cultured meat you can now produce in a vat like you make cheese. And if you can make that indistinguishable and make it cheaper, then you can actually start saving the rainforests and restoring the environment because you don't have to cut them all and have stupid cattle on, on rainforests, which is a, a ridiculous thing to do. And, um, and indeed, the most exciting one of all, which I have also found they are now doing researching, is palm oil, which is in everything. And I've seen the rainforests of Southeast Asia disappear through being cut down again. 95% of the lowland rainforest in Borneo has been cut down for palm oil, which is ridiculous. Make a synthetic substitute and grow it healthily and you could change all that these things are now all suddenly possible it's the most exciting time to be around the wonderful thing about the sort of cultured meat that you talk about is the fact that as long as it can be the original cells can be halal then it's every every piece of meat that's grown there on is halal which is superb there's no cruelty involved and there's no massive injections of hormones and, and all the things that are wrong with factory farming and indeed, the same thing applies to fish. I was talking to Rick Stein about this uh, recently, and, and, and he absolutely agreed with me that most fish is produced, in, harvested in the most unsustainable, terrible way by these big factory trawlers hoovering up the ocean bed. And of course, there must always be, as there will be with meat, I believe, about 20% of the luxury product, which is grass-fed meat in a healthy way, and proper line-caught fish in a healthy way, which is good restaurants and when you need something nice you can have the real thing but if you're if you produce protein to feed the world avoid starvation and also uh, make everybody more healthy by making it like to make cheese and wine and everything else all through microbes and the crazy thing is in the last sort of 50 years we've been inventing more and more things to kill microbes so we've got bleaches and sprays and cleaning ourselves all the time and um We've sterilized farmland with pesticides and fertilizers and overuse of um, phosphates and nitrogen. Do you think that's going to change now? Or do you think we're just going to have politicians that are worried about not feeding their people? Because it does need to be the step change into a new way of, uh, a new way of thinking. 
I think we are into a step change. I think people are now beginning to realize. I mean, isn't it ridiculous that there are advertisements on the television saying, and I won't name the product because I'll probably get sued, but kills 99% of all known germs. 99% of all known germs are good for you and what we live on. It's that 1% that carry a micron and, and uh, diseases and that are bad for you. Very small percentage of, of microbes are bad. And we're sterilizing the world by killing all the best ones as well as, as a few harmful ones. Very, very exciting that the people are beginning to realize this. And I think we are in a step change. Yeah, absolutely. And it's the germs that we don't know that are the ones that are probably going to kill us anyway. So um, it's not very much of a, it's not a very good campaign saying 99% of all known, known germs. So microbes, I totally agree. It's absolutely fascinating. We just don't know anything about it. The next controversial area in the Four Horsemen is around giving everybody in the world free electricity. And at the moment, when everyone's having to pay a huge amount more for their gas and electricity with this short-term spike in prices. I suspect there's a lot of listeners like the idea of free electricity. Why is, why is this so important for taming the four horsemen? Well, because it's now possible. I mean, of course, there are huge technological and political and social implications in trying to change the whole, go, get out of using combustion engines and fossil fuels to generate power. But it can be done. We're doing it now. Uh, we're getting there. I've driven electric cars for 10 years now. And uh, the technology is getting better all the time. And they're almost just about passing the cutting edge threshold when they're cheaper than uh, the other sort. And, and that will be a tipping point that will happen. The whole point about renewable energy is that it's free. And you extrapolate from that to doing it in a proper way. It does require investment and it will be a painful experience. But once everybody has free electricity, and it not only liberates so many people from the drudgery of, of having to go and destroy a bit more rainforest by cutting it down, turning it into charcoal and lugging it back to make your fire and, and carrying dirty water up from rivers. But it also means that if you're liberated like that and you haven't got to worry about your offspring having to have 12 children because eight or 10 of them are going to die, it is, I believe, again, somewhat controversially, not everybody agrees with me, but I believe that the only contraceptive that works is prosperity. And the best sort of prosperity is having free energy. And as I described, I think, in the book, I was in Burma shortly before. And um, way up in the, in the interior of a river, I saw a little thatched house with a solar panel on it. And I said to the man who was there, what's that for? And he said, well, to charge my mobile phone, of course. And suddenly I realized that this very remote, delightful character was leapfrogging the entire Industrial Revolution and was able to be probably reading for a degree in Harvard, for all I knew and was freed by something that was free. You know, the solar panel, very cheapest chips now, and people should be using those, and, and there are people doing already laying cables under the Mediterranean to bring solar power from the Sahara, and so on. And all these technologies are very exciting and can solve a lot of the problems. I think the key thing there as well is a sort of democratization of power as well, because in that example, he owns the solar panel on the roof of his hut in the forest, not somebody else, and is not behest to a power company or a network. And in the same way that countries that have come late telephony have gone straight to mobile phones, so they've le leapfrogged having to put telephone wires and telegraph poles that need a big company to maintain them, and they've just gone straight to the phone in their hand. And obviously there's a network that needs to be maintained, but it's a much simpler way. And that distributed power network, I think, is one of the reasons that we're going to see less conflict, which is, again, you write about this, because we're not going to have wars over oil or wars over power or wars over infrastructure or the need for nuclear 
facilities that then could be used to make warheads. Yeah, that's why I shoehorn the second horse, Black Horse, which is technically war, into the idea of free electricity. And uh, the third horse, the Red Horse, is, is famine. Here I, I get really provocative, and, and scientists are, are really scared of the solution, but I think the time is coming for that, which is that, again, on the basis that the only contraceptive that works is prosperity, and uh, that so many famines are caused by desertification and the way we're messing the planet about, and, uh, and the hunger that comes from all that. And the, the wrong way to solve that problem is to heave lots of uh, grain from the developed world into the developing world, because that undermines the whole farming system. And it, it, much as one respects uh, Rob Geldof and the whole Live Aid thing, it actually very often did much more harm than good, destroying the, the surviving farmers in Ethiopia and places. So my solution there is that it's time to open the Pandora's box, which people have been scared about for the last 70 years since we discovered how to do it, and start managing the weather. And people laugh at that because, of course, one of the great British jokes is, is how inadequate the, uh, ever since Michael Fish, the weather forecasting is. It is, in fact, incredibly complicated. I've been to the Met Office at, at outside Exeter, which is the biggest computer, I believe, in the world. And uh, it is incredibly complicated working out how the weather works. But we have got techniques for making it rain and stopping it rain. And if we devoted proper research into that, Imagine a world where you actually knew that you would be able to get your harvest in, where it rained an inch or two on all the deserts of the world and they bloomed. And it would change a huge amount, but it's immensely controversial. There is fortunately an international treaty that uh, most countries have signed, uh, which is um, that you can't use uh, weather control for military purposes. Whether anybody would observe that, I don't know. But that's the big scare, is that one country will stop it raining in another country or make it rain too much. And um, as indeed the Americans did during the Vietnam War, they made it rain every day on the Ho Chi Minh Trail, didn't do any good, they struggled through it and still won. But that's probably the most controversial of my, my horses, is the idea of controlling the weather. And by the controlling the weather, you mean very simply whether it's raining or not, because then we need rain to grow crops. That and, and uh, for harvesting, you need not rain, you need sunshine. And uh, you can make it rain in the places that are deserted. That's much most important. And then have harvests that are reliable. But you can also deal with hurricanes and uh, tornadoes and all the things which climate change is bringing about. All the uh, flooding and the fires. You can put the fires out and, 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 um, and stop floods. All perfectly possible, but rather scary because that is getting into high technology. And why do people not like this? If we are facing a future where it's going to rain too much in some places and it's not going to rain enough in other places, why are we worried so much about controlling the weather? The technology has been around for 50 years. Why would it be such a worry? 70, actually, because it came just after the war when the Enola Gay dropped the first atom bomb. And at the same time, about uh, within a year, the, another B-29 uh, dropped the first uh, cloud seeding operation in uh, Nevada, over the Nevada desert. And, and it's all known about. People can do it. It's the scientists that are scared rotten. They're pretty scared of nuclear and the implications for uh, nuclear fallout from, from catastrophes and so on. But the, the idea of opening the Pandora's box of controlling the weather, it absolutely scares them rotten. And I think it's time that they grasped that nettle and devoted much more research into, into finding out how, how to control it. It is happening now. Much more sophisticated things than dropping salt into clouds. Uh, are now being practiced with ionized rays. Saudi Arabia and Abu Dhabi are, uh, are making it rain out of a clear blue sky. I just think that would be a very exciting area to study.
And is there a, well, I have a very simple question before we move on to it. Is there enough water up there? So because you sort of talk about creating cloud and then rains from, from clear blue skies, is, is there a risk that we take too much water out of the atmosphere or is it all there? It's just in the wrong place. Absolutely. The vast amount of water up there, it just tends to fall in the wrong place because most of, the, most of the world is sea. And I don't believe, I may be wrong, but I don't believe that stopping it raining quite so much on the sea has any major scientific uh, implications. So you can redirect the clouds to, to drop on a Sahara desert. I'll tell you a very quick little story without wasting too much of your time. In 2005, the American president made his first state visit to Moscow with a May Day parade. Bush, George Bush, was standing next to Putin on, this, on the veranda of the Kremlin, and it was tipping down with rain. And he said to Mr. Putin, I didn't think it rained on your parade. And uh, Putin said, watch this space. And that was at 10 o'clock in the morning. And at 12 o'clock, when the parade started and all the missiles started driving down, it was clear blue sky. And Bush said to Putin, how did you do that, Mr. Putin? And Putin said, we did what we always do. And we bet that morning, 30 planes had taken off and dropped seeded, cloud seeding material over Ukraine. So we made it rain in the Ukraine. And uh, by the time the clouds got to Moscow, they cleared. And that is a true story. You can Google it. Amazing. I mean, that's, that is totally credit. And I think, ironically, to answer your earlier question about it raining less over the oceans, it's probably no bad thing if we're going to get uh, sea level rise anyway with the glaciers melting. So it might be strangely a, uh, a perfect circle there. Who knows? Who knows? And then I've got a question about fog harvesting, but I now can't remember because I love the idea of fog harvesting, whether fog harvesting is weather management or geoengineering, which is the next horseman to tame. I think it's under weather management because, I mean, they've been doing it in, in uh, the Atacama Desert in Peru where mist uh, drives in over the driest place in the world where it hasn't rained for several hundred years. And uh, they, by putting big nets up, they're able to catch enough water for the village to live on. And and that sort of primitive technology has been going for a long time. And, you know, it seems to me that if there if there's moisture up there, there are all sorts of ways of, of attracting it. That's a rather crude way of catching it in nets, uh, mist nets, but it can be done. But ionized rays is more exciting, and there are all sorts of other things that you can do for harvesting water. Water is one of the great things that's going to be, there's a shortage of all over the world. Uh, good drinking water, clean drinking water. And and there are all sorts of technical ways that we should be devoting research, which I keep going on about, is that we should be devoting research to sorting out this planet, not going and looking at another planet to escape. Absolutely. Have you um, spoken to Elon Musk about this? Not yet. No, I'm, I'm <laughs> standing by. I don't know where this obsession with, with going into outer space comes from. I mean, the last thing one wants to do is to spend the rest of one's life in a spacesuit in, in a horrible conditions. And it may be, you can do very clever things. I mean, you can, you can grow plants in, in uh, those sort of ways. But why would you want to I grow them on the planet and live in this paradise, this one, as far as we know, of all the billions of stars and planets? There may be other life forms out there, but I frankly don't care. And, uh, and Elon Musk could come to my local budgeons because in there they've got this fantastic little vertical farm and they're showing that they can grow uh, herbs in the back of the supermarket. So he doesn't need to go to space to see it happening. Exactly. And geoengineering, the final horseman that I'd like to talk about, which is weather management is very local. Understand that. What's geoengineering? Because this is very controversial amongst environmentalists, because I think the idea here is we've already meddled with the planet at a huge global scale. And then along comes 
environmental activists like Robin and saying we need to do more of this geoengineering and more of this change? What is it and why is it controversial? Well, we need to do the right sorts of things. At the moment, we've been extracting fossil fuels out of the ground in vast quantities and polluting the world with, with the result. I think we need to put it back down there. And, and, and we now have, uh, as one example of geoengineering, we have carbon capture and storage. And, and I mean, what a simple, nice idea that all that space underneath the land where all the oil and gas and coal came out of, all the space down there, fill it all up with carbon dioxide. And that, that is happening. People are doing that. Much the better way, of course, but it takes a little longer, is to plant trees. I mean, our farm here, we're um, jumping in on, on Michael Gove's new initiative of uh, replacing the common agricultural policy with uh, subsidies to look after the environment rather than increase production. And we're planting uh, 100,000 trees this year and turning the whole of this rather poor little moorland hill farm, which I've been trying to make a living out of for 62 years, rather unsuccessfully, because it's not, they're not economic farms like this. We're doing regenerative farming over the whole place now and planting literally tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of trees. And uh, that's the better way in the long run. If the whole, Britain has the least forest cover of any country in Europe, although it is a green and pleasant land in many ways, but so many people live in urban areas and have no access to proper countryside. If the countryside became much more accessible, and there's where the farmers have got to go, is to start accommodating people who want to go literally for a walk in the countryside. This is an exciting future. And we're doing it here on the farm, and the funding is going to come from having people come for retreats and actually enjoy the benefits of, of nature for healing. I don't know if you know about Shinrin-yoku, forest bathing, invented by the Japanese 30 or 40 years ago, where the old idea that going for a walk in the woods or indeed putting a patient outside in the sun was good for them. Nobody really knew why, but it seemed to work. And the Japanese have been very big on this for quite a long time. And uh, we've, we find that the poorest piece of land I've got on the farm here, 80 acres of it, is um, which I, I resisted having bulldozed down and cleared to turn into more unproductive farmland over the years, turns out to be one of the rarest habitats on Earth, which is uh, temperate rainforest, more than temperate rainforest. There are only fragments of it around. Now, suddenly, scientists are deeply interested in this 4,000-year-old wood, which is incredibly rich biologically. And also, they're looking at how it actually works, that going for a walk or sitting under a tree makes you feel better. This sort of talk would have been wacky-wacky country a couple of years ago, and I'd have been locked up. But now, we have scientists coming here from various universities in Britain, and actually trying to work out what it is about sitting under a tree that makes you feel better. Because as you know, by photosynthesis, how a tree works, it absorbs carbon dioxide in the leaves and exudes oxygen, which is what we all live on. Uh, but it doesn't just exude, the leaves don't just exude oxygen, they have little uh, microbes and uh, molecules, molecules within, I mean billions of them, that you breathe in all the time. And believe it or not, we have scientists now work looking at whether certain trees produce different sorts of molecules, which are called terpenes, which make you feel good. If you've got a headache, go and sit under an oak tree. If you've got, uh, you've got asthma, go and sit under a pine tree or whatever. And this is now mainline science. And the excitement of, of, of that's called geoengineering. That's actually working, how, understanding how the planet works, which we just don't yet understand. We think we do, but we really don't understand this incredible diversity of minuscule life upon which we all depend. And do you think we could, I mean, it's interesting because it's got, science is quite rational and quite linear. And do you think and maybe we can 
do this with some of these supercomputers. But in many ways, we need to sort of start to think of the Earth and the Earth sciences and the science around Earth in a much more sort of holistic way rather than it just being a rational, straight line going from A to F. Both. Why not? Why shouldn't sandal-wearing, bearded, eccentric nature lovers work alongside mainstream top scientists in solving this problem? There are a couple of amazing books. There have been so many wonderful books in the last year. It's another of the things that I've enjoyed by COVID lockdown and being able to read so many good books. Two that I strongly recommend about that are Finding the Mother Tree and uh, Braiding Sweetgrass, both written by amazing women who were partly North American Indian, Canadian Indian in origin, and grew up partly in their native communities, learning from the old shamans about respect for nature and all that side of it. And then came top scientists. And so the books are both a marvelous mixture of cutting edge science into understanding mycorrhizomes and how the whole scientific way in which nature is so complicated and interactive works, and also blending it beautifully with the dream time and uh, shamanistic respect for nature, which is from their origins. Fantastic. Robbie, we are almost out of time and it's been absolutely amazing having you on the show and thank you for coming on we do this little piece at the end which is um the first mile planet saver hall of fame which is for me a tongue twister i can never say it and we asked guests to leave one thing in the first mile planet saver hall of fame which we have all sorts of things yeah it's quite hot in there because someone's put the sun in there already we asked people to leave something in there what would you put in the first mile planet saver hall of fame well i put the same thing that i did when i did this on uh, museum of curiosities a, a bbc radio program which uh, has, has rather similar question at the end and i had a my best friend who i met in borneo was a nomadic hunter-gatherer called Nyapun, whose family had never met a, a European before and were true hunter-gatherers. And he and his family became my, my family. And uh, I loved him dearly, and he died earlier this last year. And he knew more about living in harmony with nature and understanding how nature works than anybody I've ever met. And there was a magic and a tranquility and an understanding, a wisdom about him that um, I've never met anybody like that. And we spent a lot of time together alone in the forest, and I felt totally safe with him always because he understood it all. And it's people like him that we need to respect and understand. So I'd like to put Nyapun in your Hall of Fame. Fantastic. Robert, it's been uh, fantastic having you on the show. If people want to get a copy of uh, Taming the Four Horsemen or find out more about you, what's your website, please? It's very easy, robinsbooks.co.uk. Robert, thank you so much for coming on Zero Five O. It's been an absolute pleasure. I'm Bruce Bratley, and you've been listening to Zero Five O, where we meet remarkable people creating solutions for a zero carbon world. Keep listening to all episodes on Spotify, Apple, or wherever you get your podcasts. Zero Five O.